I'm not certain what Caiaphas, the high priest, was thinking. As the sworn enemy of Jesus, I doubt that he knew what he was thinking. He certainly did not understand what he meant. But as he plotted with others to murder the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 11, this man who I believe today is in hell and an opponent of Christ prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In John chapter 11, in verse 50, he said it is necessary, it's expedient that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, verse 52 reads, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas did not grasp what he meant that Jesus would die for his people. He didn't understand what that really was saying. He had no idea what it meant that Jesus would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God used the vile tongue of this clueless priest to highlight the redemptive theme of Jesus dying in order to gather together his scattered people scattered across the face of the earth, ultimately. The fulfillment of this prophecy obviously awaits the final day. But until that final day, let's think of it, until that final day, the local church serves as a prophecy of that final gathering and as a privilege. It shows the privilege that is ours to gather in anticipation of that greater day. Think of both of these themes, the privilege, the prophecy. Think of these themes in this simple statement by Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says this, It is only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship with other Christians. A gracious anticipation of the last things. Our gatherings as the people of God would be, I think, ultimately profane and idolatrous were it not for the fact that they anticipate the greater gathering in the presence of Christ someday as his scattered people now brought to his throne. But there, it is also then a distinct privilege for us to prophesy this ultimate gathering as we gather as God's people together living together in fellowship with other believers as the body of Christ can prove very challenging at times, but it is also an exquisite privilege. Ask that Christian soldier. He's deployed overseas, and he's unable to sing the praises of God in a vibrant church. He understands the privilege of gathering. Or that elderly widow is in a nursing home and is unable any longer to commune at the Lord's table with his gathered people. Or ask the frontier missionary family who is yet to see a single convert in three years and they've gathered for worship on the Lord's day in their living room again. Ask them. 
Or ask that imprisoned pastor in China who is surrounded each Lord's Day. He knows it's the Lord's Day. He knows that the church is gathering, perhaps. But he's surrounded by godless cellmates and hostile guards. And he cannot gather with God's people. Under very less severe circumstances, ask us. In a, in a modest way, we have joined the ranks of those who long to gather as God's people in anticipation of the final gathering in God's presence. We want to be there, but right now we cannot. And so we sense the privilege that is ours when we do have the opportunity to gather. Scattered Christians form a fraternity, a fraternity that we now in some strange way join as they share their affinity for the assembly. And as we share affinity with the author of Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, we might turn there uh, to just consider the, what this psalmist is saying about the gathering of God's people and finding himself as one of those scattered, one of those isolated, who is for reasons uh, we don't entirely know, unable to gather in worship with God's people. In Psalm 42 and verse 4 we read, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Notice here that the psalmist's soul thirsts for God in this passage. It starts in verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There's a thirst that the psalmist has for the Lord. But it's interesting here in this psalm that he connects that thirst for God with a deep desire to be with God's people. So he connects his thirst to an earlier day, indeed, when he was privileged to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, with songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's thinking here of how the people of God singing together and gathering together to say that God is great and greatly to be praised. This was a privilege. This is something that his heart longed for. So again, notice the connection. A parched soul that longs for God, connecting that longing for God to the gathering of the assembly. So the psalmist linking his passion for the Lord and his passion to gather in community, his mindset then, I think, prefigures the new covenant vision of faith in Christ displayed in our love for one another as the body of Christ and our fellowship as Christ's people. The connection between a longing for God and a longing to magnify his name in assembly. There's a classic text on this I've quoted often, but recounting the days immediately following his dramatic conversion and his baptism, the ancient theologian Augustine was gathering as this new believer, having found Christ, Christ having found him, and he was thrilled with the opportunity to gather with the church at Milan, where Ambrose was the, uh, the bishop there, the, the pastor that uh, taught Augustine before he came to Christ, and then was ministering to his heart as he was growing rapidly in the faith. 
and he speaks of those days uh, upon his conversion. He says this, I quote, In those days I never grew tired of the wonderful sweetness of considering the depth of your purposes concerning the salvation of mankind. So he's feeding on the truth in assembly about God's saving grace. He continues, How I wept during your hymns and canticles. My inmost being was touched by the voices of your sweet-tuned church. The voices flowed into my ears and the truth distilled into my heart, out of which the passions of my devotion overflowed and tears ran down. And I was happy in all of this. For the first time in his life, he was with a community that truly loved God singing songs of the new life, songs of redemption. There was something in the dynamic of the gathering of God's people that drew him closer to God and satisfied his soul. As we think on these themes, how easily we overlook the privilege of gathering as God's scattered people. How easily we dismiss the transformational power of life in community with the body of Christ and how easily we fall into the cultural influence that we remain emancipated from the scrutiny of others, freed from accountability to anyone but ourselves, including the assessment of our spiritual experiences, to have other people weigh in on my spiritual walk. These are not things that come naturally to us in an individualized world such as we inhabit. And so under the withering pressure of such self-centeredness, it's all about me. Gathering with the church is all about meeting the expectations that I have. I want to be on some level left alone. And I don't want to take up the responsibilities necessary to be a faithful member of the body of Christ. All of these ideas pressing in upon us from an individualized culture, we lose the sense of the privilege to gather as God's people, to gather as his worshiping church. But I think that it's crucial that we not only prize the privilege of gathering, and I want to stress that here, but it's not only that we prize the privilege of gathering, but that we learn to faithfully build one another up in those gatherings and beyond. You remember 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. Paul says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Your gathering together as a church is detrimental to your spiritual walk. May that never be said of Eden Baptist Church. Gathering together, though, the point being, gathering together as a privilege necessitates as well the faithful utilization of the sanctification opportunity that God provides when his people gather. So there's the prizing of the privilege but there's also the utilizing of that privilege in right ways to build, encourage one another in the faith. So as we think of the New Testament doctrine, what is the church? How is it to function? The church, we know, is designed by Christ to function as a body in which members submit to the authoritative teaching of God's word. And then they speak that truth to one another 
so as to participate in one another's spiritual maturity. Now that speaking of that truth to one another is not preaching a sermon, wagging a finger in someone's face and telling them the way that it is. Of course it's not that. Sometimes it does involve rebuke. But most often it is just in the give and take of life as we get up and lie down, as we walk together along the road, as we speak with one another in daily life, to be thinking like a Christian to be filtering life through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of our redemption in Christ. So, in the midst of trials, to rejoice. In the midst of suffering, to look to God in trust and confidence, to know that the kingdom we serve is not here on this earth, but is with Christ, where we are seated with Him in eternal places. This type of thinking, as we just speak this way to one another and live this way with one another is our calling as we build up the church of Jesus. We see this theme of member-to-member -member edification threaded through the book of Hebrews, and I encourage you to turn there next to Hebrews chapter 3. We're very familiar with this type of concept, but just noting here in the book of Hebrews some of these themes as they're put together. Hebrews chapter 3 and notice verse 12, Hebrews 3 and verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's pause there for just a moment. He speaks to brothers. This addresses the, the, any professing believer in the assembly, warning them against the danger of falling away from God. That is, it's possible for one to leave the life of faith in Jesus. Now, only God can ultimately preserve a believer in the faith, and God indeed does that, always. However, believers are to take up a collective counteroffensive against the apostasy warned against here. So, in verse 13, here's the contrast. Don't fall away, but verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what is the counter-offensive to apostasy? What is the counter-offensive to abandoning the faith and falling away from Christ? That counter-offensive is for us as the body of Christ to exhort one another every day. Now this will obviously happen in the public ministry of the word on the Lord's day, given normal circumstances. But notice this is an everyday affair which indicates that the project is to be an every-member, every-day undertaking. And of course, that doesn't mean for every individual seven days a week. But it means in an ongoing way, the church is to know one another, relate to one another, and to fight for one another's faith in Christ. This is why we gather. We prize the gathering, but in the gathering, in the work of the church, we are to every day be building one another up and exhorting one another in the faith. So the point is simply this. 
the edifying speech and shepherding interest of fellow believers in the local church is a God-ordained antidote to apostasy. It is one way that God works through His Spirit in His church to keep us following Christ, to keep us faithful to Him. So God designs a believer's assurance of salvation to be a cooperative undertaking of the local church, not a purely private matter, a me and Jesus thing that we work out privately in my devotional life. Certainly, that is a very crucial part of our perseverance in the faith. But so is the assembly, the gathering of the church, the grouping of believers or the outcropping of the body of Christ as Eden, that is Eden Baptist Church. To say that there is there an identity with others who are helping me journey forward in the faith and whom I am helping in one way or another. As the book of Hebrews develops, let's turn next to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. The, the author here describes the privileges of our access to God through Christ in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Then at the end of chapter 10, he loops back to ver at verse 23 to the matter of perseverance. So there, this distinct privilege that we have of access to God through the work of Christ, through the high priest, Jesus Christ, the final and ultimate high priest, the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin, he comes back now to that community aspect of helping one another stay in the faith, continue to follow Christ. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is, let us keep trusting Jesus for salvation. One aspect of that quest is found Hebrews 10 verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. To stir up, that Greek word speaks of urging on, of stimulating, of inciting one another to love and good deeds. It's a call for regenerate members of the body of Christ to actively encourage others to pursue love for God, love for one another, good works that serve the body of Christ and that reach out to an unbelieving world. And to do that, we must regularly gather with one another. That's the point of verse 25 not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice that the opposite of neglecting the assembly is encouraging one another. So we gather in part to encourage. That word could be translated to urge, to appeal to, to exhort, to in Fuse others with courage in following Christ. That may just come across by our attitude, by our demeanor. It may come across by words of encouragement, a question that is truly seeking to understand and to bless, by prayers together and by 
certainly words of instruction and even rebuke when necessary, but to encourage one another to continue on in the faith. So to just say it by way of summary, one reason we gather is to provide opportunity to stimulate one another to persevere in the faith with an eye fixed on our final accounting before Christ, knowing that the privilege of gathering is a prophecy of the ultimate gathering when we will be wholly sanctified, glorified in the presence of Christ. That's what the church is. That's what we're doing together as a body. So I'm encouraging us all to heed two exhortations this Lord's Day as we think of these texts that have been strung together here. Let us prize the privilege of gathering as the body of Christ in worship and fellowship. And secondly, let us commit to the process of edifying the members of Christ's body as we walk in fellowship. To prize the privilege of gathering, knowing that this is the conquest of Christ. This is the work of Jesus in his death to gather his people together such that together they may anticipate the ultimate gathering before him. When we think of what it took to bring us together, may we prize it, may we love it, may we treasure that opportunity. And then may we learn the process the commitment of giving ourselves away in the gathering and in our relationship to one another as members of the body of Christ to build one another up in the faith. This takes energy, it takes focus, it takes purpose. Following a purpose to serve with Christ, to help one another persevere to the end, to take that pilgrim's progress all the way to the celestial city. C.S. Lewis provides a memorable summary of, the, of this theme in his book, Mere Christianity, and I quote, he says, God can show himself as he really is only to real people. And that means not simply to people who are individually good, but to people who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing Christ to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. God works on us through each other. People are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other people. Usually it is those who know him that bring him to others. And I'd say almost always that is the case. Those who know him are the ones who bring him to others. Those who know Christ are the ones that communicate the gospel to the lost. Those who know Christ and are walking with him in fellowship are those who convey the means of the Christian life to the young believer. That is why the church, he continues, the whole body of Christians showing himself, showing him, showing Christ to one another is so important. We could say it this way, in a manner of speaking... Jesus gets us into heaven, we get one another to heaven. Better said, 
he uses us to get one another to heaven. But to say it in somewhat of a provocative sense, Jesus gets us into heaven and we get one another to heaven. That is, we help one another persevere in the faith. We keep speaking the truth to one another. We encourage each other. We participate in one another's sanctification. Well, that brings us to today's situation of unprecedented isolation for us. Now again, we, we say it's not unprecedented isolation. Uh, we have those who are imprisoned for Christ and are surrounded every day, year after year, by godless people. No opportunity to gather. And for some of them, little if any opportunity to build up other believers until they perhaps make disciples within the jail cell. So this is, this is not an unprecedented situation. We have individuals that are unable to gather with the church of Christ. But it is certainly a unique situation for us. And I think it calls upon us to be alert and innovative here in these days. There's an ease to this matter of who we are, what we are to do as a church when we gather together. The routine gathering of the church provides unique but very straightforward opportunities to build one another up in the faith. I'm gathered here in an empty auditorium. In this auditorium, my vision is to see Wednesday nights with groups of adults gathered in circles building each other up in the faith. My vision is to see the gathered church heeding the word of God and lifting up their voices in praise. That's what's normal, but we're isolated from that right now. So I think we have to think particularly about how can I use the situation that we are in and continue to do the work of building up the body of Christ. Also, I think with that, there is to be just a patient endurance of this time, like the believer who's in prison for Christ, like the widow who is most days in bed in a situation where she cannot gather with God's people, like this missionary family on the frontier that does not gather with a church outside of their home, to identify with such people and to say, let us be patient. The day will come. We will come back together again by God's grace and, and perhaps with uh, increased uh, treasuring of the opportunity to serve Christ in this way. So as Bonhoeffer put it, Jesus died alone that we might live together, growing as Christ's body into the likeness of the one we have never seen but strangely love. And when you think about it, we've never gathered with Jesus. That's anticipation. And as we anticipate that day, may we be growing together as we look forward to gathering together as a prophecy of the great gathering when we will be before the throne of our Savior in eternity. We long for that day. May he bring it. And may he bring us back together in his grace as we keep helping one another grow. But let's also think, how can we minister to one another in these days of isolation? We look forward 
to what God will help us to do for his glory and honor.